Hello, Insiders, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you, wherever you may be. This is your host, Bruce Ash, along with Inside Track co-host, Eb Wilkinson, coming to you live from the modern KVOI broadcast complex here in Tucson, Arizona. Thanks for tuning into a special politics and justice edition of Inside Track. We hope you'll stay with us for the entire hour. We have another great show for you today. Our special guest after the first break is former Arizona Supreme Court Justice Andrew Gould, who is running in the 2022 GOP primary to succeed Mark Brinovich and become our next Attorney General. Wrapping up the show today after the bottom of the hour break is Dr. Lawrence Mead, Professor of Politics at New York University on the tragedy in Afghanistan. Okay, so uh, you guys know I oftentimes take a point of personal privilege. I'm doing that again uh, this afternoon because I want to brag for just a moment on my good friend and Inside Track co-host, Eb Wilkinson. And he tells me this is the first time this has ever been discussed on radio here in Tucson. Uh, and it's, this, is a, this is some praise that's long overdue. Earlier this week, Ebb organized and co-hosted again in its 14th year, the Tucson NRA ILA dinner. That's the uh, Institute for Legislative Action. The NRA ILA dinner, which featured NRA President Charles Cotton and helped raise tens of thousands of dollars to support the ILA's legal and political efforts to defend the most important civil rights organization in America, the National Rifle Association, which is under attack by the left and the cancel culture society we live in. Uh, we Arizonans punch way above our weight at the NRA fighting for civil rights, but I want to commend my good friend, Ab Wilkinson, for his unwavering support of the Second Amendment, uh, of the Constitution, all of our civil rights, uh, and he doesn't just do this through his considerable financial support, but also by his constant daily activities from, from gun safety to education to advocacy. And as we talked about before, you know, it's not sexy, Eb, to give money for, you know, for, not for this cause, but, but it's but, necessary, but, but for the, you know, for this kind of internal working to, 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 uh, protect Second Amendment rights and, and all constitutional rights. And you've done it quietly, very efficiently, and um, you do it in a way with, with these dinners once a year uh, that are so important for supporters of the Second Amendment and the entire Constitution to enjoy uh, here uh, in Tucson. And, yes. And thank you very, very much You're welcome. for that. Um, so... Where where did your passion come from to begin with for 2A? Well, I was brought up in a firearms household. We I don't ever remember not being around guns. I don't ever remember not shooting. I don't ever remember not going through gun safety. You know, and it went from there into the Marine Corps and from there into life after the Marine Corps. Uh, you know, everybody should know how to safely handle Firearms, and you know, sadly, Alec Baldwin proved that again. Yeah, no kidding. That you don't ever treat a gun as if it's unloaded, and right. even when it's handed to you, you always check to see what's going on with it. Always, always, always. Right. 
And, you know, the, the, the hypocrisy of the left drives me crazy. Here you've got these guys who are so anti-gun, and yet they're willing to put their beliefs aside when they want to raise money right. or make money and, and put these movies on. And then he does something as stupid as what he did. And God bless the poor gal that got shot, you know. And, you know, I I would not want to be Alec Baldwin right now. No, of course not. But he screwed up big time. You know, you just don't ever do that. And so that's why it's so important for me to keep educating everybody, especially women. You know, I I teach women, I teach a lot of women, and if they can't afford it, I do it free. Now, here's the other dirty little secret. I charge about $100 to put somebody through the concealed carry course. And I don't make any money off of it at all. They don't give me the money. They write a check to the NRA ILA. Right. So I lose money on each transaction, but try and make it up in volume. But, you know, it's important for every woman out there, everybody out there to understand firearms, but every woman to be able to defend themselves, you know, it's just, it's vital. Yeah, you're right about that. My wife, my wife had, had forbade me to have firearms in the house as our kids were growing up. Um, and, you know, like a dutiful husband, I, I, I obeyed. Um, until one afternoon, and I happened to be in Israel at that time on a trip there. Um, she, when I called her that night, it was her birthday. Shame on me for being out of town on her birthday. Yeah, wow. Of all things. And uh, anyway, she had been mugged uh, in a Safeway parking lot at Sabino Canyon in Tancaverde. And from that time on, she's been staunchly Second Amendment. She's staunchly in favor. She's a life member now of the NRA. It. Now, then she got it. All right. I think uh, we have a caller on the phone, and it is none other than Mr. Charles Heller. Charles, go ahead. Yeah, I have a, a sincere question about the incident in which the uh, the, the uh, photography director was killed hmm. in that in that uh, in the uh, series called Rust uh, is filmed in New Mexico. I can completely understand why, as part of a cinematic script, an actor would point a gun at another actor. The tradition in Hollywood has never been to point the gun directly at them, but to aim just to one side of them, so that if anything like this were to happen, you'd know damn good and well that it was a live round. You know, the person would hear the round sure. go by them. Yeah, you're doing you about know? a five and, to ten degree uh, hold right. off. And it's the same thing we do with camera angles when, when you're trying to show somebody being hit or kicked. You probably don't actually make contact with them. It's the same principle. Now, I can understand if that gun was pointed at an actor or if the photography director was standing in for the actor in a rehearsal. I could understand that. But if not, if this wasn't an active scene being filmed, what in the blue blazes was he doing pointing a gun at someone that wasn't part of the cinematic, that wasn't part of the cinematic script for right. that particular scene? If that's the case, if he just pointed it at her for practice of aiming at a person, it's both immoral and a terrible, terrible safety violation. Well, probably it violates. It probably could put him in jail. Well, it might, but it won't. All right, but it violates rule one, which is treat them all as if they're loaded. Right. Rule two, uh, put uh, always point, keep the muzzle pointed in a safe direction. Rule three 
is keep your finger on the frame until your sights are right. on the target and you've decided to fire. And number four is know your target and what's beyond it. He violated in a cascade failure all four basic safety rules. Yep. And then and he also violated rule five, which is maintain control of your defensive weapons. <laughs> Okay, he didn't maintain control when he let someone else hand him a gun and tell him it was unloaded and then fire it at somebody. So actually, I'm wrong. He violated all five major safety rules. Charles, yes, he did. Charles, a great call, and uh, uh, this is this is what you do and what Eb does in order to train people how to be safe around firearms, protecting themselves and everybody around. Thanks for your call. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Charles. All right. This portion of Inside Track has been brought to you by the aforementioned Eb Wilkinson and his partner Gary Imus from Imus Wilkinson Investment Management, whose baby steps approach to your wealth management is designed so you never have to solely depend upon socialist security. Call Eb at 777-1911 and let him help you also. Mr. Producer, let's go to our first break. Stay tuned. When we return, we'll speak with former Arizona Supreme Court Justice and GOP candidate for Attorney General Andrew Gould. You're listening to Inside Track. We'll be right back. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. A lot of the, the cities and the counties around have initiatives for artists. I think we're one of the premier artist suppliers for steel. First Saturday of every month, you can come down early and actually go through the scrapyard across the street. It's seven acres of metal. You can walk through with our people and pick out what you want. It's always interesting to see what the artists have done. We've done uh, actually a couple projects with the U of A engineering department and music department where the engineering music students came down together. They had to pick something out of the scrap and uh, they had to build an instrument. And we have one of those in front of the plant. Some really cool things come out of the scrap. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson. I am USWilkinson.com, 777-1911, 777-1911. Here, this portion of today's show, brought to you by Eric Rudin and his professional team at Essential Pest. Now is the time to have your home or business protected from bugs and critters. Also, call on Essential for pre-emergent treatment of your yard to prevent those leafy big green weeds this summer call the essential pros at 886-3029 so they can safely help you and i've got to give him a call i just found a termite tube there you go 
I it's, hope he does termites. He does, big time. Uh, Inside Track also also brought to you by our friends Jamie and Gary Kipper from Tucson Ornamental Surplus. They have some of the best surplus steel products in stock ever to help you with your next project. Call Jamie and her steel pro, Craig Beach, at 209-1576. Jane and I are getting ready to buy a whole bunch of rebar from Tucson Ionometal Surplus for a new home project ourselves. Go by the yard at 701 East 36th and look for yourself. You will be amazed and never shop again at the big box stores. These are two locally owned Great family-run businesses you can depend upon. Eb and I do. So should you. Okay, on to our first guest, Mr. Producer. Uh, it is former Arizona Supreme Court Justice Andy Gould, who is a candidate to become our next Attorney General in the GOP primary next year. Mr. Gould has been a prosecutor, civil litigator, and was appointed to the Yuma Superior Court bench by Governor Jane D. Hall. Subsequently, Governor Jan Brewer appointed him to the Arizona Appellate uh, Court bench, and in 2016, he rose to serve on the Arizona Supreme Court to fill a new seat created when the high court expanded to seven seats. Very important. In 2019, Gould authored a very important four-to-three decision preventing a small business from being forced to create custom invitations for same-sex weddings. Tells you a little something about our guest. Justice Gould received his bachelor's degree at the University of Montana and his JD from Northwestern University. Uh, welcome to Inside Track, sir. Briefly tell us about your formative years growing up, your family. You know, we live down here in this blue impacted part of the state. We don't know much about you. Tell us all about you, your, your background. You bet. <clears throat> Thank you, Bruce, for having me on. Um, you know, my mom and dad, um, we didn't have a lot growing up. Um, I, I, I laughed that when I went to law school, I, I got the white trash scholarship, but I'm, I'm proud of that scholarship and I, I took it. White trash uh, scholarship. Wow. I never heard that before. <laughs> uh, that's basically, you know, but it, it was, uh, my, my dad, uh, had a lot of different jobs. You know, he, uh, he struggled in life. Uh, my mom was a legal secretary and, so you know we lived in uh, we lived in Dallas for a number of years, and um, I went to Montana. My brother was going to school out there, and I came to Arizona in 1990. That's when I first started practicing uh, here. So I've been in Arizona for 31 years. You have received some big endorsements, and one particularly of note from Senator John Kyle, which I think is especially crucial. Uh, he said the following, It is rare when a public servant offers himself for further service after a full career. Yet, that is what Judge Andy Gould is doing by running for Arizona Attorney General. Andy has dealt with just about every kind of legal issue imaginable and helped oversee large numbers of lawyers and support personnel. All of this has prepared him for the job of administering the largest law firm in Arizona, the Office of Attorney General. Even more than Andy's experience, it is his judgment and wisdom that have come from everything he has done in these turbulent times. His judgment will serve us well. And he says, this is why I support Judge Andy Gould for Arizona Attorney General. Now, I know John Kyle. I consider Senator Kyle a friend. And I know from personal experience, he is very selective about who he endorses. Andy, tell us why you think 
Senator Kyle has endorsed you? Well, it is very easy um, when you get into your late 50s. I'm 58. Wherever you are, to sort of finish up what you've done. Um, I I think I may be the first sitting Supreme Court justice in the history of this state to step down. But uh, there are too many problems in this country right now. And I've been given this blessing uh, 30 years. I've served at every level in the courts. I've I've probably done 300 jury trials. I, I've, I've done everything you can imagine. And as I look at what was happening in our country right now, the key is the state AG. In terms of protecting rights and liberties, these state AGs can be very positive or very negative for protecting liberties. If you go to Letitia James in the state of New York, she's very active in taking away people's civil liberties and their Second Amendment rights, among other things. But then there's some other AGs like Ken Paxson who are are fighting for people's rights. So I felt like the bench is a great place, and I've served over 20 years as a judge. But the person on the front lines now to fight this battle is the AG. And so that's why I got in. I think it's time for candidates, reluctant candidates, people who have the background to get in. And I think the AGs are really the center of the fight right now. Andy, here's my co-host at Wilkinson. He has a few questions he wants to cover with you. Andy, sure. good morning or good afternoon. Hey, um, you were talking about the uh, rights, and most of our listeners know about the Masterpiece Bakery case. As we mentioned earlier, you authored a very important decision protecting small businesses against being ordered to perform services against their personal beliefs. Can you tell us about that case and what voters, both Democrat and Republican, can expect from you if you become our next attorney general? The case dealt with a very basic issue, compelled speech. You can't force somebody to say something that they don't believe in. You can't force them to write a book that they don't want to write. You can't force them to paint a picture that they don't want to paint. And in that case, uh, a Scottsdale ordinance was going to force these Christian wedding invitation makers to write a custom invitation for a same-sex wedding they didn't believe in. It went against their sincerely held beliefs. And so we protect speech under the Constitution. You can't discriminate against people based on their status, their race, all those things. But you certainly can't be compelled to give up your speech and be forced to condone a message you don't believe in. And that's the core of the Brush and Nip case, is they were trying to force these Christian wedding invitation makers, to endorse and celebrate same-sex marriages, and they didn't want to do it. It was a tough case. I took a lot of criticism for it. But I think people need to more broadly look at this. Do you want a city or a state or the federal government compelling you to say things and to condone messages that you don't believe in? I don't think there's a single person in this country that believes that. And so that case protected these Christian wedding invitation makers, but it would protect anybody's speech in this country. And so when you ask me what, what, I, what kind of AG I would be, look, I'm not afraid to get into these kind of battles and to protect these rights. And a lot of people will talk about how they'll fight for the First Amendment or the Second Amendment. You can go look up what I've done already. 
you can look at my record. I have a record in protecting, uh, you know, constitutional rights and liberties. I've dedicated my whole life to it. I represent the people of this state. I don't work for the governor. I don't work for anybody. I protect the rights and liberties of Arizonans. And I did it as a prosecutor. I fought and prosecuted cartels. I had death threats against my family. But I think a public servant should be willing to step up and sacrifice. I know our soldiers go and put their lives on the line for us. Our police do. And I really think it's time that elected officials feel the same way. So we know where you stand on the First and the Second Amendment. Uh, What about state sovereignty? The Tenth Amendment may be the most important amendment in the Constitution. It's not been used the way it should have been used. The the framers set up this beautiful system where you have uh, separation of powers amongst the three branches at the federal level, and then they have the separation of powers between state and federal. And I... I see all too often people looking to the federal government to solve problems and answers. But the Constitution was set up reserving all this authority to the states, really the majority of the authority to states, the police power and all these things. And I think it's time that people stop looking to the federal government for all these answers and work within the states. And there's so many things we can do with our own state constitution, our own state laws, and that's the way it was meant to be. So I've, I'm a firm believer in it. I've written on it, and I think it's underutilized. Andy, um, we're almost up on on a break and, and have to close it up for for the day. But uh, getting back to the uh, to the case uh, that you were the uh, author on, um, do you think that that case was set up to bring down a Christian owned business? Um, and these the, the the gay couple really didn't care about the invitation. They could have got that from anybody. But do you think this was to bring somebody down? Well, it, I have uh, I'm I'm skeptical. I think because if you look at how many businesses have absolutely no problem in making wedding invitations for same sex couples. There are literally hundreds, and if you go on the Internet, thousands. My my bigger concern was with the city of Scottsdale, frankly, in passing that ordinance, um, because these these municipalities, um, they, they pass these very restrictive ordinances, and I'm not sure if it's to promote some preferred political agenda or whatever, but they had criminal penalties in that statute, Wow. If those women didn't follow that that ordinance, they could go to jail for exercising their right to free speech, which is very unusual. Usually it's civil penalties, you know, some sanctions. It had a criminal penalty. Right. And so, you know, I look at uh, – it was a pre-enforcement action. I just want to make that clear. So there wasn't an actual couple that had gone in and requested it. It was the city of Scottsdale that was wanting to enforce it, Got and it. they challenged it before a couple came in. Hmm. Uh, friends, we're talking to former Arizona State Supreme Court Justice Andy Gould, GOP candidate for Attorney General. Andy, we ask the following question of every candidate and elected official uh, we interview on the show. This is a pretty big deal um, uh, for anybody running, especially for Attorney General. In the Arizona State Constitution, what is the stated purpose of government? stated purpose of government is to protect the rights of the people in the state. Ding, 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 ding. 
<laughs> that I think any any elected official wouldn't you believe that's the first thing they have to understand and 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 promise to protect, right? Absolutely. This is this is about serving the people of this state. Every elected official should get up in the morning and say, "What can I do to make the lives of this people or the people of this state better?" And if you're if you're enforcing the law and the rights under the Constitution, how am I protecting and preserving the rights of the people of this state? That's it. Hmm. Annie Gould, how do people learn more about you and get involved uh, to support your campaign? I have a website. It's gouldforag.com, G-O-U-L-D-F-O-R-A-G.com. You can get on there and you can learn more about my campaign, uh, how to get involved, how to donate. Uh, Everything's on there. Thanks for joining us today, Eb and I hope we can catch up again soon. Best of luck. Thanks, Andy. Andy. Uh, Mr. Producer. Yeah, Mr. Producer, we're up on our bottom of the hour break. When we return, Lawrence Mead joins us to discuss the real Afghan tragedy. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing, metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel to ranchers, artists, interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers, just like all of the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street. Call 520-209-1576 or go to TucsonIronRetail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. I'm Eb Wilkinson with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. I don't ever want you to be dependent on government ever again. I want you to become financially independent. You will never, ever have to depend on socialist security for your survival. We are here to guide you to financial independence. That's imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911. That's 777-1911. Welcome back to Inside Track. Bruce is here. So is Eb. Before we get to our special guest, Dr. Lawrence Mead, now is a perfect time to call Corazon Cabinets to get a jump on your next home improvement project. We just got our new kitchen and bath cabinets at our house, and they are stunning. The install team did a fabulous job at Corazon. 
Joy and Allie have their 6,000-square-foot warehouse stacked to the rafters with beautiful cabinets ready now for your new, for your home and your next home improvement project. Call Monday and speak to the design professionals at 488-2266. On to our next guest this afternoon, Dr. Lawrence Mead. Mead graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Amherst College. Uh, Dr. Mead, I'm very uh, happy you might have run into my brother-in-law, Rich Moret, there. Uh, he graduated. I think in in sixty seven, um, and and Dr. Mead received his master's and PhD from Harvard University. Dr. Mead has taught at New York University since nineteen seventy five, and he's been a visiting professor at the University of Wisconsin, Harvard University, and Princeton University. He was a visiting fellow at Princeton and the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Mead and uh, Mead was deputy director of research at the Republican National Committee. Probably a lot smarter than the guys they had there when I was on the committee. He was a research associate at the Urban... By your credentials, I'm assuming that you were a lot smarter than most of those guys. Uh, you're a research assistant at the Urban Institute from 75 to 78 and speechwriter for Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. Wow. Um, well... Uh, okay, but I, I'm not doing those things now. No, uh, you're not. Let's so so <laughs> let's so let's get to it, um, Doctor Mead. You wrote, and I and I'm quoting you here. Um, yeah. I think accurately. Western efforts to promote democracy abroad mostly have failed. Our policymakers yeah. have simply ignored the cultural preconditions of freedom. Today, the West must promote civility, not in its former colonies, but at home among. Yeah. Uh, the third world migrants who are now crowding into lifeboat America and Europe. Yep. That's, that's pretty my frightening view. stuff. Yeah, it is. Uh, correct. Uh, the, the difference is that in the West, you have a civic culture based upon a different psychology than you find in, in the non-Western world. Uh, this psychology is individualist, but also moralistic. Uh, Americans grow up with rigid, internally driven attitudes about right and wrong, and those things give them uh, a basis to proceed in the rest of their lives. But except for these general principles, they remain uh, free to uh, pursue their own goals, which they usually do. Uh, but the freedom to be, uh, uh, to have freedom in one's outward life is really crucially dependent on these inner uh, attitudes about right and wrong, which are actually unfree. So it's a choice, really, between whether you are inwardly free and outwardly bound or the opposite. Mostly the the non-Western world is outwardly bound, inwardly free. That is, they don't have a moral structure that is general and abstract, as the West tends to do. Rather, the moral structure is set by uh, outside pressures, uh, the conventions, traditions of one's immediate entourage, uh, the locality, your tribe, your family. Uh, and that is the basis of order in the non-Western world, pretty much. Whereas in the West, the internal order is primary and people are outwardly free. So they, the freedom that we have is based upon an internal unfreedom. And is that that's what makes it possible to have a civic society as we have in America and in other Western countries. There are a few other cases in the non-West, but not many. Uh, and that is why Afghanistan fell apart. They didn't have that. Afghanistan is an extreme example of what you see quite a bit in the non-Western world, which is countries that have great difficulty governing in the most basic sense. They can't even control their own territories. Mm. And whether they're democratic or not is is 
relevant because that that question arises only after you have a government that's able to control the territory. And in Afghanistan, you never had that. Uh, so the attempts by the U.S. to uh, to institute or promote uh, a civil society, or uh, let alone a democratic society, were, were doomed to fail. Uh, Dr. Mead, my co-host, yeah. Eb Wilkinson, has uh, some yeah, questions wanna, he's itching to ask you about. Yes, I want to follow yeah, yeah. up on that. Um, in your Spectator column, you wrote that America will recover from this retreat uh, yeah. from empire, but... What does that mean for all those failed nations like Afghanistan, which have been crumbling elsewhere in the Middle East, yeah. Africa, and the Americas? Well, they, they go on crumbling, struggling to get by. Uh, the non-Western world is a culture of survival. It's one where people mostly get through the day, and they get through the week and maybe the next month. And they, they don't have a long-term view of things because that requires that you have inner goals, which you organize around. Uh, and typically, non-West people are reacting to outward pressures rather than inner goals. So they do what they have to do, and and in fact, they're rather good at that. And there are things about that cultures, those cultures, um, that are actually admirable. And and we've actually seen this recently in the COVID struggle. I mean, America is a masterful society which generally controls its own future. But in the case of COVID, we had a kind of act of God that descended upon us without any control and initially without any solution. And we had to endure it. We had to get by. And we had to engage in survival, something which we very seldom have to do. Whereas in the non-West, they do it all the time. Their problem is that they don't have any control, because for that, they would have to be inwardly bound. They would have to have a set of goals that they themselves pursued. And the whole society would have to have a direction, a directional quality where it's going somewhere. But that is not typically the way the non-West has lived. And they're not, those cultures are not like that. They have a lot of virtues and interests, but they're fundamentally static and they don't actually go anywhere. Whereas the West does. And that's why it's running the world. Let's take, uh, one of those countries as an example, Rhodesia. Rhodesia yeah. went away. Now you have Zimbabwe and Zambia. Yeah, yeah. I've been to Zambia. Those people are so poor, they can't even afford trash. Yeah, and yeah. And when I take a look at that and think, you know, this used to be the breadbasket of Africa. You know, they used to not only feed their country, they used to feed, they used to export food, and now they can barely feed themselves. Uh, but that's because in those days it was a British colony. This was what was called Southern Rhodesia right. at the time, and and the, the British ran it, and and there were settlers there who came from Britain, and they they organized the economy, and they ran a coherent government, and but of course it was not based upon democracy, and it wasn't defensible, and so eventually it became a free country in the sense that now it's no longer governed by the British, and uh, the you still have a white population there, but it's diminishing. I'm not sure what the status is now, but most of those people are leaving because the country is now pretty chaotic. And that's what you find in any... That's also what's going on in South Africa, where uh, a, a formerly colonial country run by the British has, has is now a democratic country run by the local population, most of which is African, and although you have a European population also. You have British and also the Boers, who are really Dutch, who initially settled the country a long time ago. And the European population is no longer running things. And this means that the government is slowly succumbing to corruption. 
and it's likely to be chaotic. And so you will have a country more like what is typical of the non-West, where basically they're not well governed. They they don't have the capacity to to have a structure which everyone is committed to. See, that requires a different psychology. There you have to be inner-driven, not outer-driven. Uh, and that is the great, that is the problem. Now, the non-West isn't, this is not to say that everything about the non-West is futile. And, no, that's too strong. It's, it's, it's particularly in the areas of government where you have this problem because the nature of the culture isn't such that supports a well-governed society or indeed any, any government. So the, the average life expectancy in Zambia for a male yeah. is about 60 yeah, that might explain why they're more survival than anything else. But but well, with that being said, yeah. many of these failed states uh, failed because of a lack of the middle class. So how does the lack of a middle class allow these well, despots? But the middle class. What we mean by the middle class is something like a Western culture. See that would be the middle class in the West and in some of these countries is one where. People are attempting to organize enterprise, and they're, they're trying to create an economy. That requires long-term planning. That requires a degree of structure and planning. And, and that's not something you typically find in, in these societies. Now, there are examples where that sort of thing has arisen. I'm thinking of Lebanon, for example, although they're sure. currently having uh, looks like they're made to send again into civil war. But the Lebanon definitely had a middle class. But it never had a strong civic culture because the culture is divided, in that case, between elements that are Islamic, elements that are Jewish, Christian, so on. But they, none of them really has control. And they don't have a set of principles that govern everything which everyone abides by. See, whereas in the West you had that from a very, very early point. And, and that's why the whole democracy question is is the icing on the cake. You have to, first of all, have a government. You have a government that has enough authority to govern. And the West has that uh, because it's, and this is the irony, it has that because it's free. And and that isn't because, it, it's almost the opposite. It, we have that because we're unfree, because we have a set of principles that we internalize and which cause us to obey the law, to pay our taxes, and so on and so on. And that is, that is why Western countries are, are strongly governed because they have that underlying psychology. And you don't find this in, outside the Western world except in a couple of countries, usually with an unusual history. And the most important here is Japan. Japan is a society that's not individualist. It is not interdriven. Uh, the people are highly uh, connected to other people. So, like, people don't really have a sense of themselves as a separate persons. In Japan, everyone is collectively tied to the family and other people in their lives. And so they're enormously good at collective effort, and they can be very impressive in achieving a collective purpose, as they did in World War II when they tried to run East Asia. And then after that, after being defeated by the United States, they become a great economic power, and they're still a great economic power. Japan is an extremely impressive country. Um, however, they're unusual. They're not normal. Most of, most of the non-Western countries are not anywhere near as well-governed as Japan. Uh, and they've done it by rather special conditions, which don't prevail in most of the non-West. So we can't take them as an example. What's more typical, let's say, is the Philippines or Thailand or Indonesia. These are... Uh, Malaysia. Have a, they have a degree of order, and there is a government 
but it's a corrupt government. It's inefficient. Uh, it's certainly not democratic, although they have elections, but the elections don't really change anything because the society is oligarchic. And there are certain people are, are governing and certain groups govern, but it isn't based upon a set of principles. And, and that means that they're poorly governed. And eventually, people in those sorts of countries try to, they figure out that it's better if they get into a Western country where things will be much more orderly and we will actually have uh, uh, the, the, the rule of law and so on and so on. Would, and that, that, would that explain the flight from uh, Hong Kong to Canada after the uh, turnover yeah. to the Chinese? Uh, that's a little different because there, see, China, although it, China is, I would describe it as a weakly governed country. It's a very big country. It's very powerful because it's been able to grow its economy dramatically in the last several decades, and it's going to be a major power. But the regime is based upon a party, which is kind of like the way the emperors used to govern uh, for thousands of years. And it's based upon top-down authority, but it doesn't have a civic culture. It really doesn't. Uh, and certainly it's not democratic. So China, the re- what happened in Hong Kong was Hong Kong was a colony of the British, and the British had to turn it over to China. Otherwise, they were going to take it by force. So eventually, Hong Kong had to um, accede to the Chinese system, which is basically top-down control with um, really no opportunity for uh, uh, input by the public. But but nonetheless, Hong Kong is well-governed by non-Western standards because, again, the British did it. They, they brought in a legal system and so on and so on. Actually, Hong Kong is quite well-governed. Dr. Mead, would you agree that a common culture doesn't necessarily mean common goals? Um, Well, yes, I would agree with that. I think the uh, what what we have in the Western world is governments that are well governed and they have a set of civic goals about basic values, rule of law, uh, an idea of equal citizenship, government by consent. These principles go way back in their history. And they're designed to create a coherent government that's accountable to the society. But more personal goals are left to the population. That's, it's, it's that, that's area where that's where we have freedom. What we call freedom is really a realm in which individuals decide what to do. In fact, that's the main point of Western countries, really, is to create a structure within which individuals can ask, what do I want to do, and, and then pursue it. I mean, that is precisely what makes the West so enormously dynamic. We have this structure, and then individuals pursue their own lives. Saying you don't have either of those things in the non-West, typically. You don't have a structure. You don't have a strong government. But you also don't have individuals pursuing their own lives, because most people think of life as survival. And they're adjusting to the, the, the conventions and pressures around them. They, they, Americans bear what I call the burdens of freedom, these distinctive inner obligations that go with living in a free society. But the non-West bears what I call the burdens of necessity. That is, they primarily what makes people uh, decide what to do in the non-West is simply to deal with necessity, with pressures that impinge on them from outside. And if you come from that kind of background, you're always unfree outwardly. But you're more free inwardly than a Westerner is because you don't have a set of inner goals. You don't have a set of principles that you live by. 
um, you wait to be instructed. I mean, the great thing about non-Western culture is passivity. Uh, the, those cultures are are show a character where people are waiting to be told what to do by somebody or some force outside. See, whereas in the West, typically people are interdriven. They decide what they want to do. Now they have to make they have to adjust to outward pressures to a degree, but the thing that really orients their lives is goals. You know, I mean. For example, I'm doing this uh, interview. I'm doing a lot of interviews at radio stations based upon that article in the American Spectator, and and that's a project. So, and and most people in the Western country have a project. They're doing something. They're trying to get somewhere. Trying to accomplish something. See, and it's that inner driven quality that makes the society dynamic. And it was that quality going way back several centuries that caused the West to become so enormously rich and powerful, and then to d- dominate the world. And But that power doesn't come from nothing. And as the veterans say, freedom isn't free. The, the burden of freedom is considerable. You have to live by a set of principles. I mean, I had to say I was going to be here at 4.30 in the afternoon to do this interview, right? Right. Uh, I had another interview uh, scheduled for 6.30 in the morning yesterday, and I thought it was 6.30 p.m., so I slept through it. I, I screwed up. I didn't adhere to my commitments. Okay, everybody screws up. We, but the point is, we're, we're li- in principle we're living lives aimed at a goal, trying to do something. So and the maybe other members of my family are doing things that they've decided to do. So maybe that answers the question. Maybe not. Why is it that when national leaders and rulers change, yeah, the ills of those countries rarely change, such as that, that, that's like, right. like the Arab Spring and elsewhere yeah. around the world. I mean, well, Afghanistan's been this way for, what, 2,000 years? Oh, a long time, yeah. They never have developed an, uh, a national state. They have order at a lower level. They have tribes, they have regions, they're warlords that govern certain parts of the country. But the, uh, the basis of political order is not really a set of principles. Rather, it's conformity to a higher authority. I mean, the thing that's hard for Americans to grasp is the fact in the non-Western world, all these societies are deeply deferential to authority. Deeply deferential to authority. In America, in the Western world, you don't have deference to authority. What you have instead, you know, people defer to authority when it's behaving well. At the same time, they criticize government. See, that's the paradox. It's very hard to explain unless you talk about culture. In the West, you have uh, constant criticism of the regime, and those in power are constantly being attacked on various grounds. I mean, just this afternoon, I saw uh, uh, television ads directed at Governor Murphy of New Jersey, who's up for re-election. Okay? He's being attacked on various grounds in the press. Okay? Yeah, that doesn't happen in the uh, Middle East. That's right. But at the same time, Governor Murphy is the governor of a state with a strong government. And 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 other authorities in America that are behaving properly are also uh, have real authority and they govern and they can enforce the law. And the governor, I mean, President Biden is in that position. Now, his, his authorities are limited under the Constitution, but in the areas that he has authority, he's extremely strong. And, and so the the authorities in America are simultaneously very strong and subject to constant criticism. And this is characteristic of a free country. And if you don't have that culture, you don't have strong authority, and you also don't have criticism. I mean, that's the paradox. In, in, in most of the non-Western world, you have deference to authority. There's very little uh, criticism that's overt. 
there is criticism often behind the scenes. That's what happens in China. There's uh, there's self criticism um, in the regime, but it's all very very secretive. It's all very covered up because the regime is is worried about maintaining its authority because they we... don't really have. They've never China. The regime has never reached any serious agreement with the society. It's always ruled without consent, and that's characteristic of the non-West. People just have authority, others defer to them. And, and, and criticism has to be limited or the regime will collapse. See, it's only in the West where, the, where authority is based upon principles and, and, and a concordat with the society. It's only there that you can have both order and, and, and criticism. With that being said, where does Russia yeah. stand? I mean, they only had seven leaders since the fall of the Tsar yeah, and yeah. The, the fall of the wall. That was it. Yes, but they had, however, for several decades after the Russian Revolution, 1917, they had um, ruled by a party which claimed a great deal of political authority based upon communism, which was a whole ideology of rule. And on that basis, and given the fact that Russia had autocratic traditions, they were quite strongly governed until maybe the 70s, 80s. At that point, the regime began to, to collapse because it was very corrupt, and they didn't really have they never didn't have elections, and it began to suffer the characteristic ills of the non-West. I mean, Russia is a complicated case because part of the country actually has a Western culture. If you look at Western Russia, the part from Moscow West. You have a society that could, in fact, be democratic, which is culturally compatible with the West. But unfortunately, the rest of Russia to the east uh, is heavily Asian, and the Asians are deferential to authority. And so historically, the regime in Russia has been an autocratic one, constructed mainly to resist invasions from the east, from Asia. See, whereas in Europe, they, the, because the countries are far, far to the west, and because they're protected, they never historically were subject to Asian invasions in the same way. And so they developed a characteristic culture unique to the west, where you have, where you have a moralism that underlies right and wrong, and individuals are left free to pursue their own lives, and, and, but there's still order because of the civic culture. So th- th- this is the great western secret, the ability to, to reconcile freedom and order. We're talking, with, we're talking yeah. about the real tragedy of Afghanistan, an opinion yeah. piece in the American Spectator by our special yeah. guest on today's show, uh, NYU professor Lawrence Mead. Um, if I can um, uh, just maybe go in, in a slightly different direction, um, millions and millions of migrants, uh, some legal, mostly illegal, have, helped, have left their yeah. homelands fleeing to America for economic and political reasons. How will this mass... Uh, migration impact our nation and what can be done to prevent the chaos and disruption we might see here? I'm worried about that. The The great danger of migration is not what it was 100 years ago. If you look at the immigration of the, let's say, the progressive era, the early 20th century, that migration assimilated rather well in the U.S. because it mostly came from Europe. Right. Uh, it came from southern and, and, and eastern Europe but people came with some awareness of Western culture, and they understood that life in America was a project, that you had to make your own way, that you it was not a status. You weren't given a position where you knew what was expected. Rather, you had to do what you, what you decided to do. And in the meantime, you had to observe the civic culture. So we have 
a society, again, characterized by this strange combination of order and freedom. Now, the current migrants are very different. They're coming from the non-Western world where you don't have this. And so for them, life is about survival. And they, they're coming to the West, not just America, but in Europe. They're coming to the West primarily to escape from the chaos of most of the non-Western world. Because in the non-West, governments are collapsing because they haven't ever found a way to rule, and they can't, given their culture. So faced with chaos, and also the fact that travel is a lot cheaper and easier than it used to be, uh, millions of people are trying to go to Europe or to America. But they come without a Western background, and therefore for them it's all about survival. And, and they don't have the inner-driven structure that allows them to be civic when they first enter the country, it takes several generations for people who immigrate to America to become thoroughly Americanized in their psychology. And But Americans have been taught since forever that everyone's the same, and we can't talk about cultural differences because that's really racist, and therefore we have to just uh, tolerate people coming from anywhere, and they're all just the same as other Americans. Well, that isn't true. In fact, they have serious difficulties in America precisely because they're coming from the non-West and they don't, they don't have the attitudes that make it possible to live easily in, a, in an individualist culture. So that's why we have serious social problems, among, especially among Hispanics. We has, also have them among blacks. Blacks, of course, are the heirs mostly of slavery, but slavery, the slaves came from Africa, which is the least individualist culture in the entire world. So after the end of slavery, uh, blacks have to adjust to individualist culture, and that's something they're still struggling to do. Dr. Mead, look, I'm, I'm yeah. afraid we're going to have to leave it here for right okay. now. We're down to the last 20 seconds. Okay. Thanks for the visit. That's all the time we have for today's show. Insiders, right. I hope you've had a, a great time on the show. Until oh, next week, for Inside Track, this is Eb Wilkinson. And Bruce Ash. Thank you for listening in today. Wishing you all a very pleasant good afternoon. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. What other kind of customers do you have? So our Tucson? biggest customers are actually like ranchers and yeah. people from outside of the Tucson area. They're buying a lot of square tubing. They're buying a lot of stuff for their ranch to close off fences. We'll sell anything from 10 feet to 10,000 feet to somebody that comes in because we have new steel and surplus steel from steel mills. The reason we're able to get such good pricing on some of this stuff is, A, we sell scrap to the mill. So uh, we have a relationship there, and then we can buy material, what they're making, bringing it back. And so we save on freight, and we have relationships for years with them. So I think that's really our niche market. We'll sell whatever you need. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard, 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911, 777-1911.